Hello, hello, hello once again. My name is Jeff Watson, and I am, as always, your gracious and grateful host of the Inspired Minds podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I like jazzing that up as much as I possibly can. How's everybody doing today, tonight, this evening, 4 o'clock in the morning, wherever you are? I'm doing good. Uh, in addition to almost finishing up my master's degree in psychology, hooray, very excited about that. I'm also a therapist in training, is what they call it. Gotta gotta get some supervision before they throw you out into the world there. And it has been a hoot. My goodness, I love doing this stuff. I was born for it, I think. It's just a joy. It's a wonder. It's a miracle to be able to sit and be invited into someone's pain like this. Every time I get a client, I've clocked about maybe 300 hours so far. It's not a whole heck of a lot. Family uh, and individual to date. And every time that anybody comes into my office, I think of it like a cathedral. I really do. That it's a sacred room that I can hear these stories of pain and loss and joy and trauma and broken families and it's an honor. It's an absolute honor. It is divine to be with them. And I actually mean that in the literal sense. It's really what I believe it to be. I am also a caregiver, which I just got off shift from today. It's why I'm all jazzed up because I've been working with this guy for 3000 hours for about two years now. And it is impossible not to be inspired around this gentleman. He, uh, in 1993, he was a star student and he was about uh, 13 years old. All the girls loved him and he was doing real well in school and track and football and hit by a car. Boom. So hard that every single bone in his left side of his body broke in an instant, basically. Then he flew over the hood. Instant. Massive TBI. Cop on the scene had to hold his head, apparently, to keep his uh, head together. Induced coma for about four or five months, craniotomy, tracheotomy, gastrointestinal surgery. To this day, the guy doesn't even know how old he is because of the massive injury that he took on. He doesn't have any short-term memory. It's like working with the movie Memento, I tell people, because I just repeat things. Oh, we're going to do this now. And five minutes later, well, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to do this now. And you just keep doing that. He is uh, about maybe 10 or 5 years old in his head. Uh, he can barely op operate a computer, uh, not even a touchscreen computer, can't operate a phone, barely can turn on a television set. And yet, he is the most wonderful, kind human being I've ever met in my entire life. This giant, hulking mass of a man, the 6'3", John C. Wiley-looking motherfucker, is he has, a, he has a walker. Oh, he's a fall risk, so he can never be alone. He's never been alone since 1993, and he has to accept all this. Um, but he says, good morning, sir. Good morning, ma'am. How's your day doing? To absolutely every single person that comes across his path. And it is inspiring. It is beautiful. It is joyful to be in the presence of this man. He's also the funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. I'm not kidding. The guy has Don Rickles timing. Don Rickles timing. He has lines that Richard Pryor would have killed for. I cannot believe how absolutely funny this guy is. So all day long, I just sit around with him and he talks about acceptance and the meaning of life and these giant concepts of, of grace and kindness. And it's just, it's unbelievable hanging out with this guy. So I just laugh all day and we're brothers at this point. I often say that he's the brother that I've never had and the son that I never knew I wanted because I'd never had kids before. And in a sense, I have to be his father, but he's also my brother. 
Um, why do I bring all this up? I'm just, I am. I just like the guy. I like to talk about him sometimes. So how am I going to segue now into the next intro for the guest? Oh, I know how. Oh, I actually have a good, there's a good segue. So this next interview is with this guy named uh, Reinhard Denke, and he's a scriptwriter. He's a sound designer. We had a fantastic conversation, of course, as I often do or always do with these guests. But he had this line, and this is what ties into what I was talking about here with my client. A guy says, always thank everybody, even when they don't need it. It's rare people thank you, but those that do are a rare breed. Be among the grateful few and not the unwashed masses who aren't. My client is that. Reinhardt is certainly that. And I am trying to be that. That's my aspirational goal. So here's the deal on Reinhardt real quick. Coming up here in about uh, 30 seconds, if I can pull it off. Let's see. He has done uh, he bought a bunch of Clios for sound design, which is like the Oscars. And he has a script that he's, been, uh, he's got called Moonchild, which is about Linda Kasabian's brave journey to testify against the Charles Manson or testify against Charles Manson, which is incredible. He's got one called Sex, Greed, Money, Murder, and Chicken Fried Steak, which is an incredible true crime story, which he also wrote, P.S., with a woman named Marilee Albert, who, P.S., is his wife. I did the interview with her about a month ago as well, or maybe a couple episodes ago. And just good people in general, but my favorite part of the interview is certainly the conversation we had about the mystical and magical Mr. David Lynch. And I'm a big Lynch fan. He's a big Lynch fan. I explained that uh, when I'm 1987, the first David Lynch movie I saw was Eraserhead, Why on Ecstasy. That was a weird experience. Not even weirder, though, or weirder still, followed by watching The Muppet Show that same night on Ecstasy. Wow, my head blew up. So no wonder I'm nuts. As always, I hope that you have a great time listening to this as much as I did making it, because this guy ruled. Have a fantastic night, and stay grateful, folks. That's kind of the key, and thank somebody. It's all you got to do. Bye. Well, hello, everybody. Dazzled throng, as I like to say. Don't know how big that throng is, but please welcome the fabulous and talented uh, Reinhard Denke. I almost got your name wrong. How's that for a start? Say hello, my friend. Hello, Jeff. Well done. Um, so, again, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really am looking forward to this. Um, You're welcome. But I like to start off these interviews with the same question, and that is very simply, when you were younger, what was the first thing that you can remember or one of the first things that inspired you? Was it a book? Was it a movie? Was it a song? Was it a person? Go. I know what it is. Uh, and this is going to sound very bizarre, but it, it led to the future path of my life. When I was four, for my fourth birthday, um, my mom bought me something I had my eye on because, you know, it was at that time there were model shops, you know, all the oh, kids yeah. made models. Yeah. Um, and there was an Aurora Frankenstein and that amazing cover art. God, the name of the artist escaped me. He just passed away recently. Um, and it was the most it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And I said, I want that. And then for my fourth birthday, I got it. Um, so from that moment on, everything that I've done in my life is because of my fascination with pop culture, movies, uh, comic books, all that stuff. It stems from that moment of buying that Aurora, well, my mom buying that Aurora Frankenstein model. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. So it's a through line. Yeah, it's a through line. And and it's it's a straight through line. I mean, I, I never did anything like go to medical school or, um, you know, become a paralegal. 
uh, or an accountant. I, I, this is always what I've wanted to do and what I have been in. And, you know, um, of course, in every occupation, there's good days and bad days and good months and bad months and bad years and good years. Of course. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually. I kind of just realized this more and more that I, I love asking that question because that obviously sets up the interview. But also, too, just the fact that it is a through line. Like so many creatives, with all creatives that I'm talking to, they all have the same story. Right. Yeah. Just I like the Batman guy. We were just talking about that. I interviewed Michael Uslan. It's the same thing. He, he, he saw a vision. He, he, as a kid, he loved Batman. And then that was a through line. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and Batman has become his friend for life. Yeah. 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 He is the Batman guy. Uh, so now that, uh, now that we've got that down, um, I got to jump in. I just have to do this now. David Lynch. I want to talk about him just for a second. Okay. Because you, you and I have been going back and forth about Lynch and yeah, how much yeah. you loved Lynch. And just on a side note, so I was doing my research last night and I was, you know, going through some Lynch films again just to get my mind uh, back up on that. And I went to his channel and I was thinking, I remember his weather reports that he used mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, yeah. And still does. He's got 152 things of those on his YouTube channel. Oh yeah, I, I watch those regularly. And my my son Jackson is is he's completely into David Lynch. Oh man, that guy even was, more so than me. That guy was such a vision. Still is a visionary, but um, specifically Lost Highway. You and I were kind of going back and forth about that, and I forgot about that movie actually. And I watched. I know, movie. I know that that's one of those that that you can kind of. I mean, I remember when I saw it. I remember being deeply disturbed by it, oh, yeah. and I couldn't sleep that night. And uh, it made me never want to listen to Rammstein music again because of the, because of the scene with Patricia Arquette. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, it's it's um, uh, yeah, all of his movies. You know, they have that effect on you. I, except, you know, one could argue, Dune his his version was that was an assignment. That's not really him. It's true. And um, but the, the all the rest of it is just these are exactly the the kind of movies and TV shows he wants to make. They come from his head. Yep. He's he's you know when, when you when you look at the great directors, you know whether it's F. W. Murnau or yep. um, um, uh, you know Billy Wilder, Alfred mm-hmm. Hitchcock, mm-hmm. you know Catherine Bigelow, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and uh, you know uh, uh, what's his name, John Ford. Yep. These are very singular personalities. They, they, these are people that you would recognize immediately, and they have such a resounding uh, effect on everyone around them because their work is only theirs, especially when you look at Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. Yep. They're not chameleons. What they create is theirs, like a Beethoven or Michelangelo, it's right. theirs. You recognize it immediately. You know a Beethoven piece because of the way he deals with brass, percussion, and strings. You always know. Mm-hmm. And Lynch is unusually individualistic because his his work is, is it, it's beyond unique. And, and it's a voice that's extremely recognizable. And, you know, it's funny. I, I watch those old movies sometime because, um, like I say, my son Jackson, he really got into Eraserhead. It was a revelation to him is what yeah. it And, uh, and he, he's a movie, he's a huge movie and TV fan, um, even though he's going into tech. And, but he still finds, he's very interested in, in David Lynch. And I showed him uh, Blue Velvet. And it's interesting because he saw it and I think he was underwhelmed. Hmm. 
at first. And then later he said, the more I think about it, it was absolutely brilliant. Wow. Because sometimes I I think his his work is at a level that, you know, you, you have to go back and, you know, rethink every scene, all the music. Uh, the, the, the acting, because, you know, his actors have a, they're like Kubrick actors. They have this certain way of delivering dialogue. A Jack Nance. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Jack Nance. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Paul. Um, <laughs> and every one of them have a very distinctive way of speaking and, 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 uh, you know, you're fucking suave, man. <laughs> so fucking suave. Yes. <laughs> I got to say this actually too. Um, the first time I watched Eraserhead, it was in the eighty or late eighties, I guess, and I was on ecstasy. So imagine that. <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> I'm completely serious. I, actually, I forgot about it until last night when I was thinking about it. Yeah, I was in a in a hotel with a friend of mine. He's like, "Let's watch ecstasy. <laughs> Let's watch Eraserhead on ecstasy." Oh, and by the way, fun. Fact, remember this actually. Not only did we do that, but then as the tonic, I guess. We watched the Muppets show. <laughs> like, what the hell am I doing? It's time to put on me. Exactly. <laughs> You're watching that, listening to that with your burn braining, burning. What did I say? Burn braining. I meant my, your brain burning on ecstasy. That works too. <laughs> Forgot about that. No, I, I took ecstasy today myself. So if I sound a little confused. <laughs> You're okay. Um, I was going to say, you're just going to hug me through the microphone. Yeah, there's a lot of love here. <laughs> oh, oh, youth. Um, so I know that you uh, started uh, when you were in uh, North Texas when you were a kid in the late 80s. And then, you know, obviously you are where you are now. What I'm curious about is what got you out of North Texas and specifically where were you in North Texas? I know that area pretty well. Oh, Fort Worth. Oh, I was in Fort Worth, and and I had gone to UT, and um, I I really want to go to USC Film School, and so I applied and went for the graduate program. So that's how I got out here. A small and, town, oh, yeah. Fort Worth is. I mean, I've been there. I've been to the stockyards and had a couple. Yeah, of it's years. it's a medium sized town. It's yeah. not a big town. It's medium sized. Yeah, but it's still kind of a hick town. Kind of a hick town. Yeah, it's very conservative. I, I mean, I was just there recently looking after my parents and, and I, I, I'm always astonished at how much construction's going on wow. and I don't know my way around anymore. Uh-huh. I have to use my GPS because none of it makes sense to me. Sure. Now it's just this enormous concrete, one parking lot after another filled with uh, businesses. Gentrification. Gentrification. And it you know the the old Fort Worth that was there before they you know it's still in the stockyards and, and downtown you can see traces of it sure and and you can feel it in different parts of of the city but man I'll tell you it's not um, not anything like the way it was before in the seventies and eighties yeah because I left <clears throat> I left and came to uh, Los Angeles and I was at uh, um, USC Film School yep. and then my my, my first my first job was working for a, um, a commercial editor named Steve Weistrack. And, St- you know, in those days, I, I was an assistant editor, right? Well, I started as the delivery boy, which really? was which was very humiliating. You know, so I, I just went to USC Film School, <laughs> exactly. and now I have to pick up lunch for people. <laughs> yeah, I know that routine. Well, that was a waste of $70,000. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Even though back then that was three years, 70000 Now that would be, I think, one semester. But, but um, uh, I, 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 was, I was a delivery boy, and then I became an assistant editor. And those days, in those days, right, yep. um, the assistant editor did all the sound design. And which is, you know, it's a, that's Walter Murch 
came up with that term. The word used to be sound editor, right? Hmm. And um, Walter Murch, uh, he, he modified that to make it sound really cool. You know, <laughs> it's like sanitation engineer instead of garbage, man. garbage man, right? And and so he he came up with that. And well, back to me. I did sound design for all these commercials, and because Steve was at the highest level you could go as far as um, editors, it was all the great stuff. Right. You know, it was Lexus and Nike and and, and Nissan and uh, Liberty Mutual Insurance before they became comedic. Insurance commercials used to always be about death, dismemberment. It's true. Disease, you know, right. they were always about these horrible things. Right. Losing a limb or whatever. And, and now, of course, they're all comedic because they want to make insurance fun. Right. Um, but anyways, I, I worked there and I was still writing. You know, I want to be a writer. And so, but there's there's no pathway to being a writer there's no you know apprenticeship program you can sign up for now at the time you know i didn't really know about how to get into tv which now looking back on it if i really wanted to you know go in guns a blazing i could have gone and been an assistant for a tv show and but then again there's not a longevity there's not a lot of longevity with that unless you create a show anyways so i had written i had um i had written some spec scripts and there was this, there was a place called propaganda studios uh, owned by Steve Golan and Yanni Sigbotson. And Steve was the same guy who started Anonymous Content. And um, they they had a, an assignment, and I knew somebody at Anonymous. And, you know, I was obnoxious. I, I just wouldn't stop. Or not Anonymous. Propaganda. And I kept bothering her. Oh, I, I want to pitch. I want to pitch something to you guys, you know, that youthful exuberance. And she let me come in for a pitch on something, and I won. And it was that amazing Hollywood moment where who's your agent? Who's your lawyer? It's like, I don't have anything like that. I don't even know what an agent does. I tell me. And so I, I got a, I got a hard education with that because I, um, I went in and um, I, I wrote this, the, the adaptation. They liked it. I made some changes. They liked it. I made some more changes. They liked it. And I wasn't in the writer's guild at the time. So, you know, I was being paid very little money. Right. And, um, and then they fired me and got another writer. And, and and that's the way the world works. It was the guy, the Beetlejuice writer. Wow. So it's, I, and, and cause I thought they hire you to write a script and then they just make it right. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't realize all the arcane, uh, the Byzantine path one must take to become a writer. So my dad gave me some good advice. He said, you know, that this is not a sustainable way of living and you really need to get something of your own. And pursue that. And so I, I, I went into business with someone and um, we had a company that did sound design and music for commercials. And it was it was my company. And, you know, then finally I had, you know, the ability to make money, but I didn't have the time to write mm. because in the 90s, the equipment we used back then was so clunky and slow and we had to always lay back our tracks to three quarter inch tape. Oh, yeah. And then wait for the delivery guy to get it all to New York because advertising then and now, I mean, there's still, there's a lot of advertising in Chicago, Detroit, um, Oregon, Georgia, Texas here in Los Angeles, but really the, the heart, the beating heart of advertising is New York city. And I had no time to write. I could, I, and you know what? I'll be honest with you, Jeff. I kind of gave up on it. You know, it's oh. like, God, why do that? It's, and it was when I was married, I first got married in 2000 and my wife, she was looking at some of my old stuff. She said, you know, you really, really should pursue this. You've got some great stuff here. 
Thank God she said that because I, um, I started doing it again. I got a manager. I sold this low budget horror movie. Then I sold another one and, and, and I, I w- it wasn't fulfilling. And she asked me, uh, well, what is it you really want to write? I said, well, I like murder stories. You know, I like true crime. I mean, when we were first dating, you know, we're a couple of dorks. She's very well-educated, went to Yale, and she's a writer herself. I, oh, you're, you're talking with her next week. I am. That's right. Yeah. I was That's right. And she's written all these books. And yeah. Anyways, we used to go to Palm Springs, and there was this old used bookstore just off of Takis Canyon, or I think it was on Takis Canyon, I, I, may, maybe. And we would just stock up on these dollar uh, uh, paperbacks that were all about murders, true right. crime, serial killers, right? Yeah. And we would go back to the hotel and sit by the pool and just read these books. Then at night, we would go to that little Mexican place there on Palm Canyon or Palm Springs Way, whatever the main drag is there. And we would, it's called Las Consuelas. And then we would have notes. Okay, I think my killer is worse than your killer. And here's why. <laughs> right. And then we, we would bring margaritas and be there till 1130 at night or whenever they kicked us out. Comparing notes on killers. So I wrote a script. uh, This is around, God, I want to say 2008, somewhere in there, about um, uh, the Cotton Club murder. Yeah. Love that story. Hold on a second. Wait, I'm so sorry. But yeah, I was doing my research on you. And I didn't know about that Raiden guy. And I went through the whole story last night. It is so cool. It is such a cool. Well, I mean, it's not cool for him. But, but, (laughs) you know, as a true crime addict. It's amazing. Incredible. And, and Robert Evans crazy. is in that thing. And, yeah. and I had so much fun writing those characters. And then everyone who read that came to me and said, you're a new writer. I, I didn't even know you. And, and I think here's the story. I think, you know, that that whole thing about the 10,000 hours. Wow. Yeah. I think I hit my 10,000 hours. <laughs> you do. It was with that script. I hit 10,000 hours. And so I was out of Earth's atmosphere. So then uh, my wife said, why don't you write about that? <clears throat> that murder in Fort Worth that happened when you were a kid. Right. And so I wrote that. And then that got on the blacklist. And as a matter of fact, I can happily say that film is now underway with producers, financiers. Really? Finally. Yeah, because it got on the blacklist in 2009. And then it was optioned different times and it went from one person to the other. But, you know, nobody ever really uh, sunk their teeth into it. You know, you know how it is. These studios, they option these things. And oh, yeah, Turn it's around. only like five or ten thousand dollars. And for them, it's like, OK, let's let's go out to directors. Oh, we got a bunch of passes. All right. Well, we're not going to do it. So because we got some passes. Right. Which reminds me now, this is kind of where I want to go with this a little bit, too, is because um, you talk a lot about uh, rejection. Right. Because obviously it's part and parcel of the gig. Yes. What I find interesting is he had this great quote. I just such a you're a great writer. Oh, even before I say that, this is this is brilliant. Just to call it out for a heartbeat. You kind of reinterpret it or just kind of added a little bit to T.S. Eliot. I noticed when you said it ends with a bang, but it's not with a bang, but a very sour and ugly whimper. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Caught that one. Yeah, that was paraphrasing. Oh, you absolutely. <laughs> the best part about that, by the way, the best part, and you know this about that line is when he says, this is how the world ends. And then he says it again. Yeah. This is how yeah, the world ends. It. Yeah. And, and, and the great thing about that is, is when, um, when, when um, Captain Willard in um, Apocalypse Now is in that, that dang Cambodian <laughs> prison, that's what Walter E. Kurtz is reading. Really? I had no idea. Yeah, he's reading, a, he's reading the, the Hollow Man. Yes, Elliot. No kidding. So you talk about this rejection and your quote is 
When I was younger, rejection was a painful, soul-searing bullet between the eyes. Well done. Mm-hmm. It was the laser beam that bored into my soul and left me a lifeless husk of a human being. So my question now is, what changed? Because you get enough of it and you develop a hide. And you also realize that Truman Capote was right when he said, sometimes the best prayers are those that went unanswered. I saw you say that, too. I love that. And, and some of these projects that I didn't get, when I look back on it now, it's like, oh, Thank you, God. Right. If I had been part of this, it would have been so embarrassing. And I would have never lived it down. Because, you know, when, when you're younger, you just want to get in. I want to get in. I want to be involved. You know, I want to be the guy. And, and I want to be part of this team. And, and then, you know, you realize as you get older and, and you, you're a little more comfortable in life and you have a little more money, that desperation fades. And... um uh, as a result of that desperation fading, you, you don't you don't have that face pressed up against the glass uh, thing going on. You know, sure. you, you you start realizing that eh, sometimes it's best to lose out on these. And then you look at the people involved and not that they're bad. They never are bad. Well, sometimes they are. But but for the most part, you realize I didn't have anything in common with this group and it would have always been uncomfortable. I never would have we, we never would have found any kind of common ground. And so it's best this didn't work out. Correct. And a lot of that, honestly, I think has to do with just knowing who you are, right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. And, and by the way, as a therapist, you would know, it takes a long time for a lot of people to come to the come to know themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, it. I mean, listen, and, and here's the other thing. As a therapist, you would know this, too. The person you are at four when you get a Frankenstein model is not the same person that you are at 25 or 35 or no. 50. You, you, you change. Of course. And, but it, it's still you, but it's a variation of you. True. And I will say this, too, that I think a really easy way to go find out who you are is through trauma. If you learn the lessons of trauma. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, always yeah. Say this, I always say this, too, and this applies for rejection as well, because that can be a form of trauma. And that is simply when you face trauma, whatever that means, you have one of two choices. You either adapt or you die. And yeah. it's not necessarily surviving or dying, because for me, surviving sounds like not dead and like that's not what I want, right? But adaptation is incredibly difficult because you have to adapt into that new world that just got blown out by your rejection or the death or whatever it looks like. And death for you could be suicide, addiction, having a, what I call a calcified heart at the end of the day when you die. Oh, yeah. yeah right? You don't want that. You, that. you know what? I've always found, Jeff, that the most it's one of the saddest stories other than people that are suffering or blind or, you know, is someone who is in their eighties and has not a shred of wisdom. No, I is know. cloaked in anger. Yeah. Um, is, is, is bitter. Yep. You know, the old man on the porch spitting, smoking. Yeah. You don't want to be that guy. And, yeah. and, you know, you, you would hope that, you know, that there is something about a wise old man there's nothing wrong with it. Um, the impetuous energy of youth, as wonderful as it is, does not fit well on an older person. No, not a good look. <laughs> not a yeah. good look at all. <laughs> it's a bad perfume. <laughs> and um, um, so, yeah, trauma. Well, rejection, I, I think the only rejections that were traumatic to me were those that happened when I was younger. Hmm. Um, because I thought it would be so easy. It's like, wait, wait a minute. I went to USC. Right. You know, what's the matter with you? Right. What's the matter with you people? How come you can't like me? Yeah. And the other thing I, I, I started realizing is that I needed to work a lot harder because I've met people who've gone to Ivy League schools and they have the same syndrome. You know, it's like, what do you mean? I went to Brown. 
Right. What do you mean you don't think I'm great? Brown thought I was great. And, and you know, screenwriting or writing a book, uh, running a sound design and music company, none of it is easy. None of it comes easy to anyone. Being a lawyer, be an accountant, be a, be a, a doctor, none of it is easy. True. So, you know, the only easy thing is doing nothing. Right. And, and you know, that, I, I guess that, that's something else. Tra- uh, trauma or rejection, I think, teaches all of us is you better work harder because there's someone out there that's a lot better than you. That's right. And, well, and I, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just going to a little aside here. Um, I am a fellow Trojan. Um, and I had the, well same, well, I had the same experience, though, because I got my uh, my grad degree in communications. So I came out of the gate and I was like, I will run a studio now or run a, run a record company. <laughs> you know, they're like, uh, no, you'll be the assistant to the assistant at Warner Brothers Records. <laughs> and then I just, yeah, oh, that's, that's right? what happens, it's isn't it? It's quite a wake-up call. Right. And I mean, I literally delivered coffee one time. And I was like, I'm 30 years old. I got a fucking master's. <laughs> but I got that too. I wanted my salad without olives. Now you're going to take this back to Hamher- Hamburger Hamlet. And you're going to get Hamburger it. Hamlet. Hamburger Hamlet, good call. Uh, but yeah, you know, but it, it is that. It's To be honest with you, it's like, it's just humility, right? Like you have to be humble in order to receive these lessons from people, good or bad lessons that you're getting from them, but you have to be open enough to the experience. And the reason that you're open enough is because you have a through line and you have a vision of where yeah. you want to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel bad for people who don't know what they want to do. And I, I know people in their 40s who don't even know what they want to do yet. They're still, they're still, you know, looking around. Well, I have some projects. I'm working on some projects. Like yeah. what? Right. The other thing, the other thing that, that drives me nuts too as a writer is there's always that guy or that, that gal, you know, comes up to you. Hey, I've got a great story. You know, my grandfather, dot, dot, dot. Right. It's like, well, then go write it yourself. Right. Because it's not going to be me. <laughs> don't ask me to do it. I don't want to do your story. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing that I used to get, which is I've got a demo. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a demo here. Listen to it and get this to your boss. Exactly. exactly. Or they be sure to do that. Right. I, I got to say this too, you know, the worst thing, and I don't know how you've ever dealt with this, but whenever I would get a, de- I, would, I would call it friend rock, which is the worst music in the world for me. Um, Unless it's like fantastic, but you know, well, what, what, what's friend rock? What's what, what, what? Give me an example of a band. Sorry, n- uh, none actually. I'm referring specifically to people that I would know who are friends of mine who would then, oh. right? Then they would know that I'd worked the label and it was like, I got a demo. What did you think, dear friend? And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I had to develop the skill of saying, I love that drum tone. <laughs> talk about that for a while. <laughs> Let's talk about the drums. Yeah, I, I have noticed that. Uh, when, when people, you know, I can say one of two things. I can either say, hey, yeah, I'm a writer. Uh, um, I write a lot of scripts that don't get made. I've written a book. You know, I can, I can do that. Or I can say, I own a music company. You say, if you say you're a writer, everybody assumes you're a loser, right? Because you can't do anything for them, except maybe read their script and get it to your manager or agent or whatever. Whereas if you say, I own a music company, you know, I have got some tracks, right? That would be great on a Jaguar commercial. Right. To which I have to say, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I can listen to them and we can review, but it's, I'm not going to be making that decision. And uh, when an agency wants to uh, pick a track for, let's say, a Jaguar commercial or Mercedes, 
they listen to hundreds of things. Sure. So they're not just going to go, oh, yeah, Johnny's track was amazing. Right. Uh, we're going to put this on our new S-Class commercial. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going back to the whole through line inspiration kind of thing, which is the central, I guess, point of this podcast that I guess I'm making up as I go along. And that is simply, uh, I'll tell you a story, actually. So there was a dear friend of mine uh, who was an artist. She was a brilliant, brilliant seamstress, and she had so much vision, and it was incredible. And then she started to slip into uh, a major depression. And so she stopped creating. And then uh, she died from depression about eight years ago or so. And I will never forget this. I had a friend of mine uh, who is a, like the best, he's the brilliant, most brilliant artist I've ever met in my life. He's a, he's a singer for this band, My Chemical Romance. And then he had a show called the uh, Umbrella Academy that's everywhere. And she's a dear friend of mine. And he knew this, this woman. And uh, he turned to me one day and he said, I, I wasn't surprised when, uh, when she died. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because I noticed that she stopped creating. And when you're an artist and you stop creating, you die. Yeah. And it split me in half. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, 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 you're like a shark. Hey, could, could I just give you a quote that, that is, um, it's actually pertinent to that. Um, it's, it's a quote by, you would never guess who said this. It sounds like something Churchill would say, but it says nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is a proverb. Education is not. The world is full of uh, educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan press on has always solved and will always solve the problems of the human race. Wow. That is the hardest thing, too, especially when you're rejected or you've had you've had trauma. How can I go back and do this? And of all people, person that said that was Calvin Coolidge. Really? One of our, one of our more forgettable presidents, you know. Exactly. Wasn't so, the chicken in every pot guy? Um, uh, no, the chicken in every pot was, that Ooh. was Huey P. Long. Oh, Long. Okay. Yeah, chicken in every pot. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was his slogan. And I remember there was a great quote by Franklin Roosevelt. It said, who, who, he said, uh, Huey Long and Douglas MacArthur are the two most dangerous men in America. Wow. <laughs> Wish he had met Trump. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was way before Trump. Um, I think that's why he sent Arthur MacArthur to the Philippines, because uh, he saw his grandiose ambitions and and um, huh. uh, with with Huey Huey Long was a was a rabble rouser, you know. But on the left, he was he was more of a an ardent socialist. Uh, but you know, I mean, communists aren't known for their benevolence. <laughs> <laughs> well said, good writer guy. Not shocked. <laughs> so here's another thing I kind of want to go for, and I really like this. I've never heard of this before. Um, change agent. Talk about the change agent in a script or a film. Oh, or a book. Yeah. Or your life. Yeah. It, it, it's all about, you know, all this stuff goes back to life because all storytelling is is a way to make life seem a lot more exciting, right? And, and not that life is not exciting it's just there are dull moments and in a movie you have to compress all the excitement together in two hours in a tv show it's 10 hours nowadays you know <laughs> except for a network which is what 18 episodes i'm not sure how many they do now um and um um in movies are, i already mentioned but in a book it's hopefully not over 300 pages if it's fiction unless it's stephen king or, or, or a really great writer anything over a thousand pages gets uh turgid but um, a change agent is that person that comes along that 
causes you to rethink everything. Or it could be an event. But in many cases, it's a person. And uh, a perfect example of a change agent is um, in Taxi Driver when uh, Travis Bickle falls in love with Betsy. <laughs> See, as soon as Betsy comes into his life, which is, which is a sad, lonely existence of drugs and long work and pornography. Yep. And once she comes into his life, it sets off passions that he didn't know he had. And this leads to buying guns and, and stalking this political candidate that she worked for. And at the same time, he meets Iris. So he meets Iris and Betsy, and they're two wheels put upon the same axle, which is Travis. And, and that's a perfect way of looking at a change agent. Um, uh, similar, I'll bring him another Scorsese movie in his Goodfellas. In, uh, as soon as um, uh, Henry and Tommy, you know, Tommy comes along, everything changes. Yeah, because Tommy is unpredictable. Tom, well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. What's wrong with me? It's Jimmy the Gent. Jimmy, was it Conlon? Um, um, I, I can't remember the Robert De Niro's character name. As soon as he comes into his life, everything changes. Because hmm. because Tommy and, and Henry are a little, you know, they're, they're unfocused. They're gangsters, but unfocused. And as soon as Jimmy comes in their life, it's, it's, uh, it's a completely different world for them. So change agents also happen in our own lives. We, we meet people that either inspire or repulse us. Or what happens with some of these people is they come along and they change everything. And maybe not for the best. And sometimes we learn very valuable lessons from people who come along. And it, they're negative influences. But you come, out of the, you come out of it the other end far more successful, wiser, hopefully wealthier. Yeah, um, they call and, it, and then you never make that mistake again, right? Because you learn. They call that actually. Um, uh, they call that a. Uh, <laughs> I've completely forgotten what I was going to say, but that's okay. <laughs> about change agent, about Thank change you. agent, oh, or, or having right. a bad person come to life. Right. Thank you. And I, so I think Marcus Nispel was that guy for you for a while, right? Where is Marcus? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh well, Marcus. I met Marcus in God in the nineties. And he was, uh, he had directed some Nike commercials and I, um, I did the sound design for them. And then after that, we had a loose association, um, throughout the nineties and the two thousands. And then in 2013, we, I did sound for a movie of his. And then we got into long conversations about movies, about Martin Scorsese, Marlon Brando, these long, long conversations about all the things that we found fascinating. Because Marcus is an enormous fan of um, 1970s cinema. Oh, so am I. That's up my alley. And and he he can quote these movies. He remembers these movies, and they just roll off his tongue, movie after movie, and um, and also and also movies from the late 60s, 70s, early 80s, right? And and Marcus, I, I'm very close to Marcus, and, and I, I love him. I as a change agent, though, I'm trying to think who the change agents in my life were because. I mean, certainly my first boss in commercial, Steve Weistrack, um, a gentleman who was my first manager named Norman Todd. Um, and and my, my, my second first boss, Stephen Dewey. I mean, th these were people that came along in my life and um, it just it, re it realigned me. I have not had a and, and of course, my wife, my wife made me get honest. And better, Marilee, she she made me a better person. So I would say she's probably the biggest change agent, you know, sure. um, because I I suddenly cleared my head and I, I 
I disabused myself of all these ridiculous notions I had about different things. Yeah. She also sees the world and people and their characteristics much more clear than I do. Cause she'll say things to me like, didn't you see this coming? It's like, no, I didn't. Hmm. I just figured that guy would be honest with me. <laughs> it is Hollywood after all. Yeah. I, on a side note, I will say this too. My favorite movie out of that whole era of the seventies network. Far enough. Oh my God. Isn't that the best movie ever made? In my opinion, I say that all the time. People ask me that. I'm like, network, network, network. And not only is it good in terms of, oh, he, Patty Chayefsky predicted everything that we have now. Yeah, you hear that all the time. Yeah, of course. But that speech that Ned Beatty gives Ned him, Beatty. Arthur in Jensen. fucking Ned Beatty speech. That is the world. Oh, my God. That's so brilliant. Holy crap. I love that's that part. That's the entire world condensed into a five-minute speech. It is. And, and and not only that, but just the, the world weariness of William Holden, yeah, Holden's character, and the unbridled ambition of Faye Dunaway's character. Oh my God, that I mean, one she, scene! That she'll, one. she'll sell her soul for anything. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I love that scene where they're sitting. Well, first of all, the Ned Beatty thing when he's like that whole thing with the lighting is perfect, the long, yeah. and then when he goes. You have four medals with the forces of nature, and you shall atone. <laughs> Am I getting to you right now? Am I getting to you? <laughs> and the last line is... And he always me. calls him Mr. Beale. <laughs> he never says Howard. He goes, Mr. Beale. He doesn't. <laughs> oh, my God. And Robert Duvall, he is the Sun King. That movie. <laughs> God, and that, that was, was also, that, that was a wonderful period. In the because you know he was Boo Radley in nineteen sixty with sixty two and yeah. to Kill a Mockingbird, yep. and then he's a taxi driver in Bullet in nineteen sixty eight. It's a tiny part, right? Right. Because uh, Steve McQueen just towered over that film. But then suddenly in the nineteen seventies, Robert Duvall is working like crazy. He's in everything. It's true. Not only The Godfather, but The Conversation yep. Network. I mean, all these movies come out, and then of course the. You know, the, the role that he's probably most well known for, other than Tom, um, Tom Hagen is uh, Colonel. Um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Great Santini. Yeah. Well, it's great, great Santini and, and Colonel Trout. Okay. Um, Colonel Kilgore. What's wrong with me? You know, right. from Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, yeah. Colonel, Colonel Kilgore. Yeah. Robert Duvall. And then The Apostle. Then he got the, the Oscar for The Apostle. Good for him. And he directed it. And he directed it. I didn't know. Uh, that's what makes it so amazing to me. He directed that film. And by the way, The Apostle is one of those movies from the 90s. Totally holds up. I can watch that movie over and over. And I, I read somewhere that he and Billy Bob Thornton, Billy Bob Thornton made um, Sling Blade. Yep. And he was making The Apostle concurrently. So um, you know, they, they were making those both at the same time. And, and so that, that's why Duvall has that small part in, in um, Sling Blade. Right. And uh, Billy Bob Thornton has that small part in um, The uh, Apostle. Well, there you go. How interesting. I absolutely love that movie. I forgot about that. See, honestly, dude, this is, this is basically the reason why I do these podcasts, so I can get the list of movies to go back to. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of funny. Yeah. I mean, listen, man, anytime somebody brings up a movie to me, a really good friend of mine brought up a film that I'd never seen, and he, and, and he goes, oh, you got to see it. If you like French Connection, you'll love The Seven Ups. What's it called? It, the seven ups and he's right it's yeah. a lot of the same actors that are in french connection oh. roy scheider's the lead yeah. well of course french connections gene hackman but roy scheider was his partner 
Sure. And it has that cold early 70s New York feeling where there's certain parts of, of the Bronx that look like Stalingrad. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so cool. Oh, my God. And, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. He, he gave me a great um, he steered me in the right direction. So that day of that and, and you, you, you can watch these old movies. And, and you know what, what gets me about when you're watching these things is the level of care. Now, I'm not saying movies now don't have it. All movies, to one extent or the other, have that level of care. But they have a level of care and intensity in them that is, it just makes you, it, it, well, it certainly inspires me. Yeah. You know, when you look at, you're talking about those lights in, um, in um, 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 network. network. Yeah. All those banker's lamps lined up like that. Yeah. And, and just the, the, in that cavernous boardroom. Yeah. And I, I, I love the end of the speech when he goes, why me? Because you're on television. <laughs> and also, too, I got to say this one last thing about that work. The greatest ending in history, the greatest last line in that the first guy to ever be killed for low ratings. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's, like a weird, it's like a weird punchline to an incredibly weird and dark movie. Yeah, well, the, the movie gets weirder and it, it becomes more and more strange toward oh, yeah. the end when they bring out that that group that's supposed to be the Symbionese Liberation Army. Right. Yeah. And then he and then Howard Beale has that show that kind of looked like Morton Downey Jr. show. Kind of, oh my God, it totally does. You know, because he's in that black suit <laughs> in the right. middle of that room with all those shouting people. Yeah. I and, always say this. I've, I've got a little bit of Howard Beale in me. Yeah, I, I think all of us do. And, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder sometimes when you're watching that film, what is it that made that set him off? I, I know they were going to, you know, they were going to fire him. And, but that was such an, an extreme reaction. And, and what I like about the subtlety of the writing, I think this had been brewing in him for years. And he finally found the excuse to say, <laughs> tomorrow at this time when I'm on... Yes. Station, I'm going to shoot myself. Shoot myself. Exactly. <laughs> Live television. Oh, and let's not forget, too, I could do the entire show on this. Let's not forget, too, when they're all sitting with like Dunaway and Duval and all those guys are sitting in the corporate room at the very end and they're like, okay, we're going to kill them. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's, just this, it's a corporate decision. Is it? <laughs> exactly. And from here, we'll move on, gentlemen, to a Onward and upward, Penn right? <laughs> Dunaway. Are the ratings going to be? I think they'll be just great. I think they'll be huge. <laughs> a crazy movie. Well, before we wrap up, <laughs> that was one of the best quotes from Marcus Dispel. I shouldn't say. I'm never mind. I'm not going to say it. I, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, Come on. Uh, no one listens to the show anyway. Come on. Marcus told me when it was during the rise of Trump in 2015, 2016, okay. somewhere in there. Yep. And Marcus said, Trump is Howard Beale. In many ways, he's Howard Beale. Huh. And how did Howard Beale's life end? Oh, good point. And I said, damn, you think that? And he goes, I don't know. They had no other thing to do with Howard Beale. It's true. And because he couldn't keep going on. And someone like Howard Beale can't fade away. You know, the, these, these characters that come along in life that are so bombastic and so divisive and so big. They can't become like MacArthur said, you know, old soldiers never die. They just <laughs> fade, away. fade away. MacArthur did fade away. And he was very old when he said that. So he could, I mean, he was already in his 70s, I think, really? during the Korean War. So, yeah. wow, I didn't know that. He was much, and, and in those days, people only lived to be about 75. Um, 
but um, uh, no, no, I, I, it's 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 a fascinating phenomenon to look at because these big. I mean, because we're, I mean, I think we're around the same age. We did not grow up with big people. I was I'm post Kennedy, so I don't remember Kennedy. And uh, you know, we, we grew up with you know the, the movie star. Yeah, we had some great movie stars and you know all great personalities, but we've never had grown up in such tumultuous political times. Yeah. I, I don't remember the 1960s. Yeah, certainly. And, and, you know, the 70s just seemed like bubblegum and bell-bottoms, you know? <laughs> and great music. Yeah, true. And now everything seems, there's a darkness. And I don't want to get depressing, but yeah, there is a kind of a darkness going on that's hard to put your finger on. But, you know, as creative people, we have to reflect that in our work or try to rise above it and write happy stuff. It's true. And, you know, I will say this really quickly before we kind of wrap up the show here, but um, you know, I was talking about Michael Uselin and the Batman thing. And so this is interesting because I guess I'm cross promoting my own fucking show, but it was interesting because I asked him, I asked Michael, I said, cause he's responsible for the tone of the entire mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Right. And I go, obviously the shows are getting darker and movies are getting darker and darker and darker. I'm imagining it's because Batman reflects the tenor of the times. And he's like, yeah. yep. Exactly. Absolutely. Right. Especially in this last movie. Uh, um, there's a darkness. There's always been a darkness to Batman, and, except for in the 1960s TV show, which is delightful. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Cesar sure. Romero's Joker and, uh, you know, Victor Bono is King Tut. You know, that's a lot of fun. But, yeah, you're right. It has because in, I never felt a darkness in the 80s Batman because it was Tim Burton, which is a cartoon. Right. right. But but this latest Batman incarnation, I, I love the way Robert Pattinson played him as a weirdo. Yeah. It's kind of a reclusive weirdo, as opposed to, you know, Christian Bale and, and the, the, those Christopher Nolan movies set the bar so damn high. It's hard. To, it's hard for any other film to, to get near that. But what what, you know, the way um, Christian Bale played him is as a you know playboy, an interesting, uh, very wealthy man who has a lot of influence, whereas Robert Pattinson almost seemed like a recluse. Yeah. Yeah. It's Bruce Wayne, because when he attended that funeral he looked like he wanted to be anywhere but there. That real pale face and those dark locks of hair falling in his face. And, uh, and, and of course, the funeral turned into a much bigger event than yeah. I think they yeah. anticipated. <laughs> so I got a couple more things real quickly here. One is, I, this is fantastic. I love this quote, and I want you to kind of fall on it a little bit. It's not hard to be nice, especially to those who deserve it. Talk about that. Oh, well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've always had a, a, a like a barometer um, when, when, I, when I meet people and when I get to know them a little bit. And if anybody is rude to a service person, yes. I, don't care, I don't care if it's a waiter, if it's, if it's a clerk, if it's someone at a department store. If someone is rude to a service person, I don't like them. And, and that is a tell yeah. because it immediately informs me. This is a rotten character. Stay away from them because that's going to be me on the receiving end of this any day now. And I'm usually 100% right on that. I'm wrong on everything, Jeff. I'm I'm wrong all the time. But when it comes to judging character as far as the way people treat service, someone who's trying to help you out, um, that's it. So, yeah, in in relation to that quote, if somebody is, is kind to me and someone is courteous, not at all hard to return that courtesy. And uh, same thing with, if someone's trying to help me with something on the phone, a broken piece of equipment, you know what I mean? A service call. Um, How do I turn this refrigerator back on? 
you, you, and, and they're being kind. And even if they don't speak the language very well, if they're trying, it's not hard to be nice. It's not, right? And I, I also will kind of bring this up. Two years ago, during the pandemic, when it started, I was going to like Starbucks and Safeway, and I saw these poor kids getting screamed at over masks and this and that and my coffee and fuck you. And so I realized, I said, wait a second, I'm just going to do something, a little trick and see what happens. So, and I do it to this day reflexively. Anybody behind a counter is kind of how I usually say it, or that's on the phone for a you know refrigerator call. I kind of go out of my way to make them laugh. And I'm pretty good at my numbers. I hit about 80% of the time. And if I don't, big deal. But that's my form of resistance against what's happening now. People will always say, how can we fix this? Fucking connect. Connect. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because anytime I go online and it's Quora, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, the rudeness of that whole thing <laughs> is beyond belief. Shocking. Like, how could you say that? You don't even know this person and you're calling them a moron just yeah. because you don't agree with them about something that's very stupid. Right. You know, and 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 I, I hate it because to me this stuff and I, and I, I I said this in the book that I wrote um, uh, the 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 um, um, in at one point in the book somebody I, I have a character talk about and I and this new this new TV script I just did I think social media is like the Krell Labs. Have you ever seen the movie Forbidden Planet? Yes, I know. <laughs> I know what you're talking about now. Okay, the whole point of the Krell was they built this giant machine that was uh, over the entire planet. And uh, Professor Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon, he couldn't figure out what they would what happened. All he knows is that they made it, and then suddenly, in one fateful night, the entire race of the Krell were destroyed. And what that machine did is everybody could plug their minds into it and see inside everybody else's mind. And then they all killed each other because they were so revolted by what they saw. Right. And that to me is, is a lot of times, I mean, social media has a lot of good. I mean, it, it does help people, but in other ways, it's the unflushed toilet of the human race. I mean, it's just like it, you, you, you see people who you respected, who, you know, and the things that, that they're writing down, it's like, I know thee not old man. How could you write that to someone? How could you say these? And how can you be so friggin' wrong all the time? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to end the show on a happy note, perhaps. On a happy note. We'll see where this goes. Um, and this is the same question I ask every single creative I can on the show or not, because I get a billion different answers. Wonderful. Here we go. As a writer, creator, whatever the hell you want to be, when do you know you're done? Good question. I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm, um, I, a friend of mine was talking with Paul Hirsch, you know, the editor. He did Star Wars. Who was on my podcast, by the way? Hey, listen, he when, when it comes to editors, he is one of those with Walter Murch that I just I, I fall down and worship. I, I mean, I, my, that interview was amazing with that. What guy. these guys have done. But there was a wonderful quote of his. When do you know when you're done with a scene? How do you know you're finished with a scene? And his and his answer was, there's no right answer. You just get to the point where you abandon it. Ah, move on. That's the way I feel about writing a scene or writing a screenplay, or it gets to the point where there's you you've uh, exerted so much energy into it that you know it almost it glows and it glows so hot that to go back to it it's like burning yourself. Ooh! So I can't go back to something that I put so much energy into and try to disassemble it, except maybe weeks or months or years later. I've gone back and revisited scripts. This um, the one about the murder in Fort Worth, the yeah. one that's getting made. Yep. Knock on wood. Um, that one I I um, 
I, I stepped away from it for 10 years and, and uh, the new producers came in and said, we've got to change this. And I, I suddenly saw, because before I was like, I am not changing a word. It got on the blacklist, you know. <laughs> right. That makes it better than all of the screenplays, except maybe Citizen Kane. <laughs> and, and, and then I, I realized, yeah, you're right. You know, maybe there's a reason it hasn't been made over all these years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm open to being wrong. <laughs> I'm the most humble man in the world. <laughs> well, listen, buddy, what an absolutely wonderful conversation. Oh, likewise. This was fun. What a so, great way to spend the, uh, your morning. Well, see, here's, here's how I end this thing. Um, actually, real quick, I do want to make one quote. that's my favorite quote from a Lynch movie, which is simply, and you know this, it's simply Robert Blake going, call me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he hands him the phone. It's brilliant. I'm at your house right now. And, and he goes, he, he goes, how can you be at my house? He goes, ask me. Ask me, right? <laughs> I answered the phone. God, that movie's so fucking creepy. And then, and then just two years later, he's yeah. arrested for murdering his wife. Exactly. <laughs> I wonder why. Exactly. <laughs> fucking crazy. Ah. Oh, okay, so here's how we do the last thing. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. We're going to pretend to say goodbye, at least. And then we're going to okay. hang up, and then I'll talk to you afterwards for a bit. Just a little closing. But... This involves a little acting, as I always say. So I'm going to act like we're going to be saying goodbye. You okay. are going to be act like you're saying goodbye. And then we're going to quote, unquote, hang up. You ready? Okay. And Slate. Um, thank you. Honest, honest to God. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank fun. you for having me. It was fun. Oh God, I had a blast, man. I just love these shows. Yeah, that's the We got to talk about network. We got to talk. I mean, I could seriously, I could do five episodes, like five whole shows on network alone. But you know what? You're right because it's one of those movies like Citizen Kane that you. It is. You, you, every time I see it, I, I catch something different. Yeah, Citizen Kane's overrated, but that's just my opinion. So, you're so you're so now it's your turn. Say goodbye. Okay, goodbye, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. This has been a lot of fun. Good, man. Thank you. Of course. And here we go. We're gonna uh, go. We're gonna go one, two, and click. <laughs>